Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Michael Walzer. He is a professor emeritus at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He's also editor emeritus of Descent Magazine. In 1977, he wrote a landmark book, Just and Unjust Wars, a moral argument with historical illustrations. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Jerry. Uh, Good morning. I'm actually up in Clackamas, Oregon, babysitting twin four-year-olds right now. Uh, I found that uh, that's a handful is all I can say. I'm exhausted and only got here last night. I'm still exhausted. I'm uh, basically an environmental lawyer. Alden. Uh, I'm in San Mateo, California, just south of San Francisco. And uh, I'm disappointed that John Woodford is not wearing a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Oh, where's my hat? You're right. Peter. Hello, I'm Pete DeLisavoy, and after I'm, I'm an editor and writer in New Hampshire, and after Harvard, I spent some time in Africa and down south in the civil rights movement where I did some journalism and published a piece in Dissent, as a matter of fact. Ah, okay. Peter Grilly, how are you? <clears throat> I'm fine, thanks. Um, I'm... Uh, class of 1963 originally, but uh, didn't graduate until 65. I took two years off to study in Japan. And I was introduced to this group not too long ago by my freshman friend, freshman year friend, Doug Shapiro. Um, I now live in Harvard, uh, the the town, not the school, the town. Um, uh, But I'm at Harvard, the school, quite quite often. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Professor Walzer's comments today. Okay, Mason. Uh, I'm in Gulfport, Florida for another month before I go back to Maine. Uh, in the last week, I heard that my brother-in-law has a rapidly accelerating degenerative disease. One of my old girlfriends died. A uh, Harvard classmate uh, had a stroke and is immobilized. And I just had my 82nd birthday, and I'm feeling pretty good. So, uh, <laughs> good for you. Hang in there. Wow. Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass. Government major were these guys, class in that class. And getting out of, uh, getting out of college, I took a, about a year's trip uh, from London in a Land Rover around to Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh, with a friend, and we did a number of interviews with embassies and businesses. As I used to call it, uh, we explored the soft underbelly of the Soviet Union. I never came up with a book, but uh, had interesting experiences along the way. And uh, I'm a a big fan of Joe Nye and uh, his book, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was something like why morals matter. 
and it was a adjunct to soft power. And I'm interested in listening to your take on such things. Okay, Anne. I'm Anne Huberman, live in Peterborough, New Hampshire, retired academic librarian and now climate activist. Hey, Spencer. Hi, Spencer. Harvard 61, uh, Evanston, Illinois, where things is a cooking. And uh, interested in just what uh, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about here, or uh, coming a minute ago, on climate change. Uh, my field is of endeavor is sustainable development. Okay, Hamp. Um, I'm Harvard 63. I'm originally from New York and Boston. I, I've uh, lived in Brazil and Puerto Rico. I, I've been in Nashville since 1978. Uh, I graduated in social relations and philosophy, and uh, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist here. Uh, John. Hi, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I think uh, uh, Mike Waltzer, when he was a grad student, he was sort of the, the gray eminence behind uh, Travis and my getting involved in the picketing movement in 1959-60 with the group there and Freddie Gardner and others. So uh, we looked up to him. He was very uh, wise for a person so near our age. And I'm sure that continues to be true. <laughs> George Jones. So I'm in, a, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm in Ann Arbor <clears throat> as well. Ken. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Ken Manister. Uh, I'm a retired environmental law professor at Santa Clara University. Live in Los Altos, California. Um, like Nick, I was a government uh, concentrator at Harvard, uh, and I was thinking back. My junior year tutor was Morton Halperin. Uh, my mm -hmm. senior year tutor was Edward Banfield. Ah. Presiding over uh, orals that I had was Samuel Beers, who was really unhappy that with Morton Halperin. I had studied stuff that uh, Beers uh, thought was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Congratulations. Marcy. I'm still working in New York City. Um, it's spent my life working for wiser allocation of public resources, both natural <laughs> resources and public funds. And lately I've been completely flabbergasted at the magnitude of money and power on the other side. David. Uh, David Althmer, also class of 63, grew up in Latin America and uh, spent most of my life in public broadcasting, both at WNET in New York City and WHYY here in Philadelphia, where we have lived for 30 plus years. Okay, Jay. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Jay Pasikoff. I was Harvard 63, so I think that Michael was at Harvard in some of that time. I remember some Harvard thing, and then I was at the Institute for Advanced Study in 1989. Um, but anyway, I'm really interested in hearing what he has to say today, and we certainly recognize his name from his essays in various locations all these years. Now we go to uh, Professor uh, Walzer, who was, and we are delighted to have someone who is a little bit older than we are, but many years wiser than we are. So. 
Welcome. I have to tell you one Harvard story. Okay. I published a, a piece um, on the Ukraine war in the last weekend issue of the Wall Street Journal. I, I've never published there before. Um, and I got an email from Harvey Mansfield, who ah. reads the Wall Street Journal every day. He's now 90 years old and not retired, still teaching in the government department. And it turns out that on Ukraine, we have what may be our only agreement. <laughs> <laughs> And how do, how do you feel about Ukraine? Tell us uh, your thoughts, especially as, as it relates to the, you know, you want your book. It is the sort of war that is too easy to judge. I mean, it is, it is a, an illegal war under international law, and it is an immoral war uh, under just war theory. Um, and the conduct of the war is barbaric. Um, what they are, they are um, un unable to, to advance, um, meeting unexpected resistance. They are resorting to uh, a kind of war that we have seen before um, in, in Chechnya. Uh, Putin fought exactly this, this kind of war. And um, in Syria, the, the bombing of um, Aleppo was uh, similar to the bombing of, um, of Kharkiv and Kiev. Um, and it is important to remember that it's also similar to the American bombing of, uh, of Japan. Um, and more recently uh, to the um, American bombing of, um, of cities in um, Iraq. Um, I'm, but, less, I'm less willing to agree to the bombing of Japan than you are. Yes. Especially uh, because my father in 1945, having landed on Normandy in the medical car and gone across Belgium and the bridge at Remagen and liberated Bergen-Belsen, uh, had orders in his pocket to go to Japan. So among the hundreds of thousands of people whose lives were saved by dropping the atomic bomb, whose consequences were unknown at that time, you will admit, um, um, may have saved my father's life in addition to that of hundreds of thousands of other people. So yes. when you do the first thing, I'm, I'm not willing to put Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the same category as Aleppo or, or Rakhif. Yeah, well, there is an argument there. Um, and it isn't, it, it isn't clear if we had been willing to give up on unconditional surrender, as we eventually did, there might have been a, um, a, a peace agreement before the bomb was dropped. Anyway, that's an old argument. <laughs> I have been through that many times. Um, if, you, if you think instead of the bombing of Dresden, say, 
um, that's an easier case. Yeah, that was because by then the war was clearly won, and Dresden was not a military target. Um, Professor, I'm I'm glad you brought up Dresden. I was going to ask you, when did it become a war crime to bomb civilians, innocent women and children, et cetera? Since we carpet bombed Dresden and and other cities within Germany during World War II. And I don't remember anyone calling it a war crime at that point in time. That's right. It, it, it wasn't. Um, deliberately aiming at civilians was declared a war crime in the post-World War II Geneva Conventions. At Nuremberg, um, nobody was uh, prosecuted for bombing cities. And there is an interesting case, uh, the case of Leningrad, the siege of Leningrad which lasted for, for two years. A million people died in the city. It never surrendered. Um, and the, the German general who directed the siege was put on trial at Nuremberg because he ordered his soldiers to shoot at civilians who were trying to flee the city, which is something that Russians have done now around uh, Kharkiv and um, the the town that I can't pronounce. On, Marifold. Um, yes. Um, but the uh, German general was acquitted at Nuremberg on the grounds that the um, siege warfare was not regulated by international law. And it was customary practice to prevent civilians from leaving the city. Um, but in just war theory, for some time, we have argued that um, civilians must be allowed um, to exit um, a besieged city um, before they die of starvation or lack of water or medicine. That's a, a, an argument I, I make in the Wall Street Journal piece uh, about sieges today. But this, also, is, a, this that, is a frightening war because we're because because Russia has nuclear weapons and also biological and chemical weapons, and um, that means everybody has to tread very very carefully. Um, and there, and I think the President Biden is right to say that this is not a war in which American forces will uh, will intervene. Uh, it's too dangerous. Um, and yet I think we have to find every other way of helping the Ukrainians. Well, it seems to me that if, if we accept that it's somehow more justified to bomb civilians at Hiroshima and Nagasaki under the hypothesis that some troops uh, might have got killed if we engaged in another form of warfare, then there's no limit or restriction, really. Uh, there's always going to be a justification for wiping out uh, other people and their cities. So I would say that I would have to take a more critical view of of uh, atomic bomb use on the Japanese civilians. Well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were first, first for one thing. And only. And, well, yes. And then the bombs were prepared 
in case the Germans got the bomb first and bombed us. Well, there are a lot of books and different points of view on the subject, but we know what happened. And yeah. we know the precedent. Yes, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I would ask, um, I would ask, are we in a, a very uh, uncertain? Yeah, Miss Campbell is his name. Miss Campbell right. is his name. M A S C A M B L E, which doesn't have a G in it. But it's, uh, it's, I reviewed the book. I can send it to anybody who asked me for it. The most controversial decision Truman, the Atomic Bomb, and the Defeat of Japan by Wilson Miss Campbell in 2011. Okay. Uh, Nick. Uh, I would just ask uh, your opinion of whether we're in a um, unknown territory here. We, we were, it was a fairly stable situation in the 50s and the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s with mutually assured destruction understood on both sides. And now we are doing things, um, we're doing things with that in mind in a way, but not sure that the other side is thinking the same thing. Putin is perhaps not thinking the same thing and he thinks he can move the threshold to his advantage without us doing anything. Uh, it's uncertain, much more uncertain, it seems to me. Do you yes, feel the same way? Right. We, we haven't had a, a situation like this. Um, since, um, well, even during at the height of the Cold War, American and Russian leaders were talking to one another. Mm -hmm. And now there seems to be no communication. Um, and I, I, I hope there is uh, some kind of backdoor. Um, I, I, I read in the New York Times that um, top American generals are not able to reach the top Russian generals, that the communication has been cut. That is very dangerous. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I had a lot of sympathy with with uh, Joe Biden's remark about Putin, but um, the the truth is that whatever wherever he stands on the moral hierarchy, and I'm willing to believe he's quite low, uh, he is someone that that we would we should hope to talk to. Um, even to shake hands with, I guess, diplomats always wear figurative gloves so that it's not a real shake hand, but, it's, uh, but it, it is important that they meet and talk. Um, and the fact that the Russian, that, that Putin seems to be isolated in the world and maybe even isolated in the Kremlin, that's very scary. Ken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my my uh, the question I was going to ask was uh, along the same lines as what Nick just said because I've been realizing I feel so uncomfortable and, and hard to to grasp um, 
the deterrence of a response um, because of the threat of use of nuclear weapons by the Russians. And it occurs to me, we've, we've gone from what, uh, you know, it was called mutually assured destruction or deterrence uh, to unilaterally assured deterrence. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost a form of, of extortion saying we can use all kinds of barbaric methods and weapons um, with the threat that if things get even, I don't know, more provocative for us, we'll use nukes, uh, but you won't use nukes because we know where that'll end. And, and I don't know, I, I'm just having trouble making sense that sort of in the unintended consequences realm, which was referred to relative to the bombing of, of Japan but by Jay um, uh, a little while ago, uh, it seems like one of the unintended consequences of mutually assured deterrence is uh, it, it can become unilateral. We, we've got them. We might use them. We're doing other horrible things. Um, I, I don't know. Can, is any, anything you could say to help, help, help make <laughs> sense of this? Yes, yes. Putin, Putin has actually um, threatened the use of weapons um, in, in a way which would not be um, a response to anyone else's use of weapons. And, and, and that is that we have not heard from any political leader in, in many years. Uh, oh, uh, Kent, I yeah. just wanted to say that I was looking up, I thought I remember this, uh, Barry Gouin, who was at the New York Times, he was also at Harvard, uh, maybe a year or two ahead of us. He reviewed the Miss Campbell book, and in his review, he notes that Miss Campbell uh, does not engage in other scholars such as Michael Walzer and A.C. Grayling, who have written at length to challenge the morality of the raids, that is, the bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One might have expected him to engage their arguments, but he doesn't. Instead, he uh, shows another, Gouin says, easier uh, to dismiss critic and attacked her argument, but uh, did not engage Michael Walter's argument whatsoever in his book. Hmm. So I, I, I don't know that, that book. Mm -hmm. um, but I will, uh, I will look for it. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I bring this back to the basic uh, ethical issue? And Professor Welser, I'm, I'm sure this is a very naive kind of question, but I have some difficulty thinking about the whole term, uh, just war. I mean, you're killing people, which to my mind is not in general a good thing. Uh, so could you talk a little bit, and I suspect it's the theme of your book, which I apologize I have not read, but um, what, what, what is ethical? Yes. Um, well, first of all, there, the dress war theory has two parts. Jus ad bellum, which is this, the question of is the war itself justified? And jus in bello is the conduct of the war justified? And these are two separate moral judgments that, that we, we make, I think, um, routinely. I think people have always judged 
the decision to go to war and the conduct of, 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 of war. Just war theory is specifically a Catholic creation. Um, medieval Catholic theologians, uh, Augustine, and much more so Aquinas, and the Spanish Dominicans developed the theory. It moved into secular international law in the 17th, 18th uh, centuries. Um, it, is, it is an effort to figure out when it is justified to go to war. And the, um, the, the standard and most obvious um, case of just war is self-defense. Um, and uh, we, then there are, and there are not many arguments about self-defense. I mean, there are people who would, there are realists, prudential people who would say that say Finland in 1939 should not have fought the Russians, should not have fought the Russian invasion because they knew they couldn't win. Um, but they did fight anyway. And because they fought, Finland never became a satellite state. So um, most of us, most writers about war believe that fighting in self-defense opposing an invasion of your country is a, a just reason to go to war. Um, with things like, um, is it humanitarian intervention is, is much debated. Uh, is it right to invade a country where a massacre is going on in order to stop the killing? Um, the Vietnamese, sent an army into Cambodia to stop the, um, the communists, uh, the other communists, the Cambodian communists um, were killing, um, in a, they were destroying the, uh, the educated elite of Cambodia. They were killing anybody who had, an, who had a, 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 any kind of professional education. Um, and the Vietnamese stopped it with force, and um, I have justified interventions of that, of that sort. I thought the American NATO intervention in Kosovo uh, to, to stop what were Serbian atrocities, including mass murder, um, that that was a justified war. <clears throat> um, as for Yus in Bello, the conduct of war the crucial moral principle is um, non-combatant immunity. That, that when you are fighting, you must do everything you can do to minimize the, um, the killing or injury of civilians. Um, and there are a lot of arguments about what exactly that means and um, what um, it means to say you have to do as much as you can do. And the crucial disagreements are about what risks you can ask your soldiers to take in order to reduce the risks that they impose on, on non-combatants. And there's a classic example of that. Um, we talked before about the bombing of German cities. 
Um, the worst bombing of German cities was done by the, the British, who quite literally decided um, that they uh, would aim at residential areas in cities in order to break the morale of the German people. Um, the American Air Force, mostly in World War II, flew and mostly aimed only at military targets. And in fact, we would accept greater risks for our pilots. We flew at lower altitudes in order to be able to aim at military targets. Um, and that was a, 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 a decision that was both yeah. pragmatic and moral, pragmatic because American strategists believed that the best way to end the war was not to bomb civilians, but to hit factories, um, ball bearing factories, factories that made tanks and munitions. And that's what we, uh, that's what we, we, we did. So Yusin um, Bello is mostly, is focused on arguments about how, how much you have to do in order to, to minimize civilian uh, casualties. Mm -hmm. George. So actually this is sort of consistent with, I think the point that you made about the Russians, the British and the Americans, but I hope I can get this quote correct. Some, some British guy in, I think the late 19th century made the statement that the essence of war is violence and moderation in war is folly. Now, there are two ways to, I think, well, a number of ways, but at least two extreme ways to look at that. One of them is, one response is, if he's correct, then it's okay. And what you should, in fact, be trying to do is to kill your enemy to death. But the other <laughs> response, it seems to me, is that war is never justified. Right. And ju just war theory works between those two positions. <laughs> Um, yes, it is. A, it is a view. You got it, um, perhaps in General Sherman in the uh, Civil War, the American Civil War. Um, General Sherman, who said war is hell, um, believed that because war is hell, anything you do to win, to win it quickly, is better than um, fighting uh, with, with any kind of constraints. Uh, which might prolong the war. And of course, that is the, the standard defense for Hiroshima, uh, that it ended the war, or Nagasaki ended the war. Um, and asymmetric war raises very new questions about how to, um, how to fight when, when the um, enemy the asymmetric wars is between a high-tech army and a low-tech insurgency. And the low-tech insurgents hide among the civilian population. So the high-tech army does most of the killing of civilians. And for that reason, often loses the war. Um, an American colonel in uh, Vietnam said something like, the more civilians we kill, the more certain it is that we will lose the war. Um, 
So asymmetric war raises very difficult uh, questions for the high-tech army. Um, and I think if you look at the history of uh, asymmetric wars, the French in uh, Algeria, the Americans in Vietnam, the Americans in Afghanistan, the Israelis in Gaza, the high-tech army doesn't, um, doesn't win. Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, uh, conversation. I'm coming down on, uh, uh, like, would follow up where George was going with that, or probably was going, is that the concept of war itself is now, I think, technologically uh, an insane idea. And is, it, is as insane as dropping of any bomb or, or any other act of violence. The, the, there is no more separation of degrees of violence. And, the, and uh, there's a practical reason for that. There's a moral reason, of course, obviously the biggest reason is always moral. But the, uh, the practical reason is, is that we've got so many other things now like germ warfare and chemical warfare that are as equally destructive and horrible in the, what their consequences as uh, radiation. So radiation itself is just another horrible thing, but we've got so many other ways of inflicting horror uh, uh, and moral horror that I think that the conversations uh, continuing as on what war is just or what war is um, uh, better than the other. Uh, Lincoln was in that uh, predicament when you mentioned Grant, when Grant said all the things that he said. And Grant said, my view of the war is that we have to suspend that and I'm willing to accept the, ca the casualties to do it uh, because war is hell. I'd like to just say one last statement is that uh, the other uh, reason for the insanity is that the destruction of the environment that wars now cause is so great that any war is a war on everyone in the, uh, on, on Earth, uh, that we can no longer afford it just to save ourselves. And if we have war, why not war because of the violence on trees in Brazil, because the destruction of trees is going to be as powerful as the destruction of people in terms of ultimate mass murder. The whole thing can no longer be considered rational. Okay, but then what do you do if you are a Ukrainian and suddenly there is a Russian army crossing your, your border and bombing your cities? Yes, one last statement. That's my favorite one. Because I said in the beginning, or I was thinking in the beginning, and was and my friends saying that the only way out is talk. And Zelensky has now reached that. And I said that there's going to have to be compromise, that, you know, or at least the illusion of compromise. That that the uh, he, you know Putin is not going to leave and and uh, commit political suicide by a no-win war. So some. Something has to be traded there. With due respect to the professor, I, I think that a line simply must be drawn between nuclear weapons and everything else. Uh, nuclear weapons are an existential threat to the planet, planet in a way that even the very first things you can imagine 
uh, chemical weapons, uh, these horrible uh, firebombs, which create in a small way uh, what was done uh, en masse in Dresden and Tokyo and other Japanese cities of getting a firestorm going. Uh, uh, all of those are things that are, however horrible they may be, uh, there is still a planet afterward. Uh, and the places where they were done uh, become reasonably habitable at some point. Uh, but the half-life of uranium is 8,000 years, the half-life of plutonium is 24,300. Uh, anything we uh, irradiate uh, becomes permanently uninhabitable. Uh, there's no point at which uh, Chernobyl is going to be somewhere that people can go back and live. Jerry. Uh, yes, um, two things. One, Jay, uh, I had an uncle on Iwo Jima and he indeed was very much in favor of dropping the atomic bomb, I can assure you. But that wasn't my question. My question is, I'm hearing more and more about what I will call technical, tactical nuclear weapons, very small ones that have limited radiation fallout. And I understand we are somewhat concerned that maybe the Russians would use that. If indeed they did use that, Professor, what do you think our appropriate response should be? Yeah, I... This is, as someone said at the very beginning, unknown territory. Um, I do think the best line is the line that the previous speaker was advocating, a, a, a very clear line between the use of nuclear weapons of any sort and all other forms of, um, of, of, of warfare. Um, I, I expect that if the Russians use tactical nuclear weapons, that we would, if they use them, yes, that we would, it would, there would be people in the US military and in the US government advocating a response in kind. Um, and I just, I just don't know. I mean, I, I can't imagine being in, the, in a position where I would have to make a decision like that. I, I don't think that any US military officer would launch in, in retaliation. Uh, I've talked to a lot of these guys and the way in which they talk about that is very much the way in which they talk about whether or not uh, there are nuclear weapons aboard a ship making a port call in New Zealand, for example. Uh, or the way in which they talk about whether or not there is nuclear weapons storage on Northwest Field of Guam, uh, which there undoubtedly is. Uh, and that it, it, the euphemism is that the United States will neither confirm nor deny. I wanted to ask uh, Professor Walter, I think in the various theories about kinds of war, there are also uh, wars of national liberation are often considered just. Uh, and uh, um, I think in Marxist theory, they had theories of, you know, wars in which in inside of a country, the working class or proletariat is resisting the violence of the police state. And, you know, so these are all different uh, gradations of what's considered just use of uh, violence. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Um, 
and it is it is an argument um, uh, both at the level of ad bellum and in bello. Um, the Algerian struggle for independence from France was probably just, but the terrorism used by the Algerians in the city of Algiers was certainly unjust. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and in fact, we do know that um, the, 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 in, in, in the IRA and in the, in the FLN in Algeria, um, there were actual debates about whether to turn to terrorism. And there were people who opposed those, uh, who opposed the use of, of, of the, the bomb in the cafe or the bomb on the bus. Um, there, were, there were strong voices against that kind of political struggle. Um, How do we deal with the fact that the victor in these conflicts often can have done the same thing that the loser may wind up getting punished for. And, uh, you know, the victor defines what the victor did as having been all right and escapes punishment for doing the same kind of deed. Well, yes, justice is always to some degree victor's justice, but we can, we can work toward um, something like a, um, an international court Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the court that tried uh, war criminals in the wars of the former Yugoslavia, uh, that was an international tribunal and it looked at all the sides. There were, there were uh, people brought to trial and convicted from Serbia, Croatia, um, and, um, and Bosnia, from all sides in that struggle. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the aim. It doesn't doesn't right. always or often happen. Chris, from my view, there's no doubt that Kissinger is a war criminal and many others over here. But then what do we do about that? Yeah, what we do about that, John, is where I was coming from. If you're in a situation, like if you're in a fight, the question is, are you gonna let the person, you know, like what what about the people in, in Ukraine? They have to fight now. So that the, the, the thing of this, uh, that's the great American dilemma of Martin Luther King. When you are confronted with a mob on the street and they are battling, Peter, Peter Delisboy certainly knows about that moral dilemma. And they are, are battling you. Are you going to let them just like, you know, uh, do that or are you going to fight? Uh, that's one situation. Uh, and it is a moral decision. But the thing is that, that to go on the assumptions, to continue the assumptions that there are these gradations of moral, you may fight back, but that doesn't make it, you know, the solution or, or moral, a moral act. It does not make it a moral act. It's a decision to survive. Okay, now, so that the thing is, is that we have to end the concept on the end of is this just or is this not? Is there such a thing as a just uh, 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 destruction of anything? Uh, I mean, of, of this nature, people or environment or so forth, because we, we humans have to move beyond thinking that we can, 
that these things are within the realm of rationality. That's my point. So I, mean, you, I, I, I am for the fact that they have to continue to do what they're doing and to try and to fight as hard as they can. Oh yeah, they, that's no question. But the thing is, is that we have to fight, as Zelensky is saying, within the concept of once we can get somebody to stop stop fighting while we're fighting, and then get and then move on to something else. You know, a new a new situation, well, not Michael, say the next just war. Do you feel, okay. Michael, that we're the morally the U.S. is doing the right thing now? I mean, what's your sense of that? Doing the right thing right now. Yeah, I, I, I think, yes, I do think we're doing the right thing. I'm not sure why the, um, the leading negotiators, the people who are trying to run back and forth between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the uh, Erdogan of Turkey or Macron in France, why Americans aren't doing that. Hmm, interesting. Um, and I, I don't know what, what the reason is. Um, and maybe we are behind the scenes. I, we, we don't know. But I, I do think that um, hoping for uh, a change of regime in Russia, hoping for um, a, an acknowledgement of defeat from Russia, that's too hard on the Ukrainians. Um, and and so we we do need to be to be looking for some kind of compromise. And Zelensky has been suggesting the the shape of a compromise. Um, and I think we should be supporting that that effort. Um, maybe maybe more than we are. But I also think we have to be sending um, anti tank and anti aircraft weapons to Ukraine. It seems to me that a new morality is potentially possible, but I do not think it is possible within my lifetime or within the lifetime of anyone who is presently alive on this planet. Well, Michael, let me let me ask you this. I mean, you wrote your book in uh, 1977. I mean, if you were writing it again, what would you change? I, I don't think, you know, it's the, the book has been the subject of a lot of controversy and I don't, I, I have mostly defended uh, pretty much everything I said there. I would need to write a lot more about asymmetric warfare. Um, I would need to write more about what risks we can ask our soldiers to take in order to reduce the risks to civilians. Um, I, I, I think I, I, I would probably want to say more about um, terrorism. I have a section on terrorism, but it's, it's become such a, there have been so many terrorist attacks in so many parts of the world and the um, suicide bombing is something I, I didn't write about. Um, so th on the big questions, I, I think I would still defend the positions I took on the, on some of the detail of the, um, 
the kinds of wars that we have been fighting. Because Russia-Ukraine is the first conventional war in a long time. Um, but there have been a lot of wars of a different kind. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't, I would have to say more about those kinds of wars. I mean, how do you feel about Yemen, for example? I mean, how does that t- tell us how it applies to Yemen? Yeah, it's a, uh, y- Yemen sometimes looks like one of those wars that all, it's between bad guys and bad guys. <laughs> um, it's very hard to figure out in that war who you would, who you really want to win. That's a case where you, where the most important thing is to stop, is to stop the fighting. Um, and and it, it, there may be an argument, um, although it would be very hard to make in the Yemen case, <laughs> that what you really want when a war like the Yemen war is going on is for some big power or for some UN force to come in and defeat both sides and just create a, a, a decent world for the, for the people who live there. But I don't know how, <laughs> how to arrange that. The UN is not yet an instrument for that kind of, uh, of pacification. How do you feel about that, John? Uh, I, I agree. I think our country and our military have many, uh, like our constitution, many wonderful values and ethical principles in it. But I, I think we often become prisoners of our local short-term domestic politics so that some of our potential statesmen you would hope to see um, taking some of the stance that, that, that Mike's talking about, a lot of the times they're afraid they're going to lose the local elections or you know upcoming elections if they advance a moral position that seems to be not just you know grab your gun and go out and do this or bomb someone anything that's more subtle um, can be can be poo pooed in the newspapers and media and so that's why I think we don't see Americans taking the lead because they're not sure what's going to happen. And a lot of our bigger figures are afraid that their careers would be damaged, it seems to me. Yes. Um, domestic politics plays a role, but often sometimes we get caught in other people's domestic politics. Mm-hmm. Um, we end up uh, with, with it's, as we did in Vietnam, with supporting governments that are insupportable. Yeah, well, we help Yeltsin get in, and Yeltsin leads to Putin, and then we helped the guy that led to Zelensky get in. Uh, I mean, our hands are all over the place when it comes to getting some of these people in, and a lot of them, as you said, neither one side or the other, when you start looking at them in detail, uh, there are a lot of um, not admirable qualities spread around there. Talking about not admirable qualities, you have to make some compromises. Certainly in World War II, uh, we, yeah. uh, we needed uh, the Russians. Uh, and I don't think anyone would say that Stalin was uh, a wonderful person, uh, dem- democratically elected by a willing populace. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but but we, we supported him, gave him arms, and, and mm-hmm. hoped like hell that he was going to win. Yep. 
You're right. 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 A lot of American merchant ships made their way around the northern parts of Norway and Finland and got to Murmansk to deliver weapons to the Russians at right. great risk. That was a, those were dangerous voyages. Michael, could you tell us, tell us, go to your tea leaves and tell us uh, what's what's going to happen in the future? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. That's the only reason I tuned in for crying. Out. Yeah, right. Well, what's the, what's the most, what's the kind of breakthrough that would be needed to uh, get Putin to? Oh, a European decision to cut off imports from Russia. Russia. Ah. Yeah, that would probably do it, but it would produce ah. considerable <laughs> hardships in in Europe. Mm-hmm. Who do you think, is there a figure in Europe now who might be leading uh, uh, a move like that? There, I, I don't see that, no, yeah. no. Mm -hmm. um, it would probably have to be someone like Merkel from Germany and she is gone mm -hmm. and her social democratic successor has only just arrived in office and doesn't seem like a very strong figure. Mm -hmm. um, and Germany made a critical error in shutting down their nuclear plants and then relying on Russian gas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a good point. Well, yes, listen, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. You made us feel a little bit better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> that was Michael Walzer. He is a professor emeritus at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He is also editor emeritus of Descent Magazine. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.